Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nate Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by Shoshana Zuboff, Harvard professor, philosopher, and author of In the Age of Surveillance Capitalism, an idea we explore in great detail in the course of this conversation. Now, Professor Zuboff is featured in the recent documentary, The Social Dilemma, on Netflix, and I came to know her when she attended before our international hearings in Ottawa in June of 2019 where I've often been more narrowly focused on the specific issues of privacy rights and election interference, Shoshana brilliantly articulates the larger economic logic at play in our digital world and its consequences for individual autonomy and democracy. As but one example, Channel 4 News has just reported about President Trump's deterrence project, a campaign designed to suppress voters using a vast cache of data and targeted ads. Shoshana, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time. Surveillance capitalism. You've written about many different issues in the course of your career, but this is the idea you've become known for in recent years, and also the reason you were a principal witness at our international hearings into big data, privacy, and democracy in the last parliament. So, what is surveillance capitalism? Well, if you're wondering how Google went from a company that in the year 2001 made $86 million dollars in the year 2004, it went public and was valued at $20 billion, and it's now worth a trillion dollars. And most of that market capitalization is attributed to the discovery of surveillance capitalism expressed in its creation of online advertising based on behavioral micro-targeting. So surveillance capitalism is pretty much single-handedly responsible for Google's astonishing growth and wealth, as well as virtually 98% of Facebook's market capitalization, which is not quite a trillion, but moving up there very quickly. And then as we look across the economy, many other companies, not only in the tech sector, Amazon, Microsoft, but insurance, finance, education, healthcare, retail, just across the board, using surveillance capitalism to find the margins that have uh, eluded them in other forms of global competition. So how do they do it? This began with a discovery at Google in the teeth of financial emergency in 2000-2001. What they discovered was that as people searched and browsed, they left behind behavioral traces. And This extra data was just left lying around in their servers. They didn't need it to improve search. They didn't need it to create new products like translation. But when their venture capitalists started complaining that the company hadn't found a way to make money and they were going to pull out the venture capital that was keeping the company alive, they started to look urgently for new avenues. And what they discovered was that these leftover data, behavioral data sitting around in their servers and their storage, were actually highly predictive. And they started to learn that they could take these behavioral traces and actually use them to create models that predicted who was likely to click on which kind of ad. This was an amazing breakthrough. And they realized now that they could go to advertisers. Advertisers sold their soul to Google's black box because what Google said to them was, we can now predict where you should place your ads. We're gonna tell you where to place your ads. 
you no longer choose keywords. You no longer look for opportunities that align with your brand values, which is the entire history of advertising. Our algorithms are going to tell you where to place your ads. You just do what we say and you will make money and we will make money. And that's how online targeted advertising markets were born. And of course, the secret at the heart of all of this was that the users whose behavior, the metadata from our behavior was used to drive this manufacturing process that produced the algorithms, that produced the predictions, that created these ad markets and their stunning success. Now, in some respects, we have traditionally worried about Big Brother and government collection of our personal information, government surveillance. In Canada, we have a Privacy Act that sets markers around what government can collect, under what circumstances the government is able to collect information. Another act, PIPITA, sets markers for the private sector. Google, Facebook, insurance companies undoubtedly know more about me than any government does. And for many citizens, that seems to present less of a concern. Why should I be worried about the current state of affairs? Why should I worry about surveillance capitalism? All right. Well, let, let's just start with what puts the word surveillance in the phrase surveillance capitalism, because all of this depended upon people not knowing, first of all, that they even left behind these behavioral data streams. And second of all, that they were being put to use to predict their behavior. And third, that these predictions were being used for the sake of others' interests, not to come back and give us things that we need, not to come back and solve our problems, not even to come back and solve society's problems, but rather to give business customers, beginning right, right at the start with advertisers, to give business customers a leg up in being able to sell us stuff because they knew more about us than we knew about ourselves, they could predict our behavior. From the start, this thing had to be conducted through a one-way mirror. It was designed to keep us out of the loop, designed to keep us ignorant. And that means that the entire regime of notice and consent that has supposedly legitimated this online world was from the start a piece of kabuki. From the start, it was completely disingenuous. Because if you don't know what's happening, if systems have been engineered to bypass your awareness, then there is no meaningful consent. The whole thing is just, you know, one of the great larcenies of this whole era of capitalism, why I call it a rogue capitalism. Now, from a consumer protection perspective... We can't possibly expect citizens to police their rights through every individual contract online. I mean, it can't possibly be that the onus is on each of us to read every term and condition in every online consumer contract and say, I'm comfortable with this, I'm comfortable with that, I completely understand what I'm giving up in the course of using this service. Not only is it impossible, but it's cynical because the companies know that it's impossible. Yeah. And they've designed these contracts to be impossible, to flummox and bamboozle every individual user. I tell the story of the Nest thermostat. Nest was a smart home device company. It was purchased by Google. It continued to operate as Nest and grow and develop under with Google's capital. Now it's been reabsorbed into Google. And it, so it's no longer called Nest. It's called Google Home. But the thermostat that they produce 
like all of their home devices, collect and aggregate data, most of it out of the awareness of the people who have bought these devices. Just in 2017, two scholars from the University of London did an analysis of the Nest thermostat, privacy contracts, and end-user agreements. And of course, in those agreements, you've got to read, you know, past page 37. And then you figure out that the company is streaming the data to third parties. It takes no responsibility for what those third parties are doing. The third parties then stream the data to third parties, same thing, on and on. And these scholars concluded that any just moderately self-respecting consumer has a need to review a minimum of 1,000 privacy contracts with the purchase of this one device. That's the kind of dishonesty at the heart of this whole economic logic. The entire logic is based on this bed of sand, which is essentially what in other contexts we would define as a criminal act, namely thievery. So how does surveillance capitalism operate? It unilaterally claims our private human experience as a free source of raw material. These raw material are turned into data, behavioral data. These behavioral data are sucked into supply chains. The major supply chain used to be what we do online, but now They invented that little computer that we can take with us wherever we go. So whether you're eating in a restaurant or walking in the park, making your way through the city, whatever you're doing, including in your own home, are you in the living room or are you in the bedroom, even how are you moving on your mattress? Because there are mattresses now that are sold with sensors to make your sleep more comfortable and it requires an app on your phone and the whole thing goes from there. So now these supply chains convey these behavioral data streams to a new 21st century manufacturing facility that we call artificial intelligence. And inside that factory, what we've learned from a leaked Facebook document about its own AI hub, its factory, it says that its AI ingests trillions of data points every day and produces 6 million predictions of human behavior every second. So that's the scale that we're talking about. So what what happens in these manufacturing facilities, our data is cranked, analyzed according to artificial intelligence capabilities. And uh, what comes out the other end are products like in any manufacturing facility, but these products are predictions of our behavior and they're sold as all products are. They're sold and they're sold into a new kind of marketplace that trades exclusively now in these human futures, these predictions of our behavior, just as we have markets that trade in pork belly futures or oil futures and so forth, commodity futures. And now these predictions are the commodity. So to put it in a slightly friendlier context, in some ways, my smartphone is indispensable in my life. I'm, I've long used Google products and I value them a great deal. Gmail is free. Google Maps is free. My wife will attest to my poor sense of direction and Google Maps has certainly saved me in any number of cases. So if the trade-off is that I get to use a free service like Google Maps that helps me get to and from a range of places, sometimes on time, I give up my location and then I get targeted with ads because I'm in a particular location at a particular time. What's the harm in that kind of trade-off? 
The overarching point here is that these products and services are fantastic, and many of us love them, and many of us need them. And of course, we also live now in the year 2020, at the dawn of the third decade of the digital century. We live in a world where it's almost impossible to operate without them. So not only are you freely choosing Google Maps because it gets you home on time, but for most of us in most situations, we have no choice if we want to participate in society effectively. So that could mean calling the school for my kids' grades and going through the the platform. That could mean something as simple as getting on Facebook to organize dinner with my family, going through the platform, right? That the minimum of effective social participation requires us now to march through these supply chains because these companies have become so monopolistic, gobbling up the small innovators in their spaces and either killing them off to eliminate competition alternatives or integrating them so that everything is under the the Facebook banner, the Google banner, the Amazon banner, and so forth, our alternatives are foreclosed. And so in a way, we have gradually, but in a very short period of time, because this has only taken a couple of decades, but in that two decades, we have moved toward a world of no escape. So let's talk about the harms, because of course, that's one of the key questions in this whole conversation. Why should I care? What what does it matter? All right. Let's begin with the fact that what I've described to you is an economic logic. I use the term economic logic because that's broader than simply a business model. And you can have a variety of different business models, but each of them adhere to the same economic logic. For example, surveillance capitalism, you have your behemoths, your Facebooks, your Google, Amazon, and so forth. But you also have a very complicated ecosystem. For example, right now, there's a whole range of small software companies that do nothing but offer surveillance as a service to a whole range of different kinds of end-user businesses, right? business customers. You have other kinds of small companies that do nothing but collect and analyze behavioral data from different niches. For example, there are companies that collect and analyze behavioral data from people who rent their homes or their apartments, and they use that to create predictive models of, of what kind of renter this person will be and whether they're going to be you know, reliable and so forth. And they sell that exclusively to uh, markets of landlords. So there, there are very complex ecosystems in this whole thing. All of them, different business models, but all of them pertaining to this underlying economic logic. Within this economic logic, we can see that there are some critical imperatives. One of them is, if you're going to feed an AI and it's going to be effective, you need a lot of data. So we have economies of scale. We're collecting everything that we can collect. It it drives these companies toward totality. That's the ideal. Right. So there's no limitation by virtue of necessity, as much information as we can get, because then the more effective the targeting. Absolutely. No boundaries. So we've got economies of scale. As competition intensifies in time, they discover that scale is necessary, but not sufficient. We also need scope. We need varieties of behavior. And that's part of what drove the mobility revolution, 
let's get these folks, you know, off their laptops, off their desktops. Let's get them moving around and doing things because we need these varieties of behavior. Let's get their faces. Let's get the angle of their bodies when they walk down the street. It turns out that something as simple as gait and the stoop of shoulders, the actual angle of the shoulders are highly predictive of somebody's emotional state and emotions are highly predictive of future behavior, right? So we've got scope both in breadth, but you've also got the depth. Now we have economies of scale and economies of scope. Competition continues to intensify and eventually they realize that the most predictive behavioral data actually comes from intervening in people's behavior, using all the knowledge we have about you to intervene in your behavior, to find ways to use subliminal cues, uh, social comparison dynamics, other mechanisms that actually kind of herd your behavior in a specific direction by, by manipulating rewards and punishments that are relevant to your activity. So, for example, in the insurance industry, you have uh, automobile insurance contracts now that can actually stream data from your foot on the gas pedal, right? They can stream data from your gaze behavior behind the wheel, and they can analyze these, these data points in real time to come up with a prediction of how safe your driving is and raise or lower your premium in real time, rewarding and punishing your behavior, shaping your behavior in real time. So using all these varieties of behavior modification to intervene in your behavior, shape your behavior and drive your behavior in the direction that feeds their bottom line, that increases the predictability of their predictions, guaranteed outcomes. This is called economies of action. This is a new frontier. How do you use the vast infrastructure of phones, of sensors? How do you use this digital surround in order to remotely repurpose the monitoring, repurpose all the knowledge and the analysis uh, that has been accumulated in order to feed back into that system to begin to actually shape the behavior of individuals, groups, and indeed whole populations, right? I can see how when we look at the Cambridge Analytica scandal, using profiling to target insidious messages full of disinformation targeted to specific segments of the population intended to be seen by some, but certainly not to be seen by everyone, that kind of use is obviously problematic. And I can appreciate that the failure of Google, Facebook, Amazon, and more to properly notify customers about how their personal information and data is used, or even the extent of the surveillance of one's activities. I mean, there are wrongs there on that front, too. At the same time, it does seem that much of behavioral advertising could be shrugged off as relatively insignificant. I searched for a product, and now I'm being targeted with that product. So the question of harms, as you describe surveillance capitalism it seems in a general sense to be an attack on autonomy, but the harms also seem to be less concrete in some or, or maybe many cases. Now that we understand the economic imperatives, I think it's it's easier to dig down a little bit and begin to understand the harms in a systematic way. First of all, what we've just described is that 
under the aegis of private capital. Now, you will forgive me. I'm not absolutely certain about what I'm about to say as it relates to Canadian law, but I can tell you with certainty within the U.S. context, a private corporation is not subject to constitutional constraints in the same way that a public sector entity is subject to constitutional constraints. So private companies are allowed to do things that a public entity would not be allowed to do within our constitution. That is one reason if we take if we want to explore it later you know how these how these companies sort of fell into a political boondoggle back in the early 2000s where they were allowed to develop these surveillance capabilities in the first place that has everything to do with 9/11 the war on terror and in America a very abrupt shift folks who were there at the time reckon that the shift happened literally within about 12 hours from really intense discussions on Capitol Hill about comprehensive federal privacy legislation to a new preoccupation with total information awareness. And so on September 10th, the conversation was about how do we regulate these fledgling companies like Google? Because the Federal Trade Commission had already come to the conclusion that these companies were not going to be able to self-regulate. They were doing cookies. They were doing web bugs. They were creating all these ways of secretly monitoring and tracking people across the web long before we got to the levels of sophistication that, that we inhabit now. But suddenly the whole thing changed. And now the, the thinking on Capitol Hill is, wait a second, we're going to need surveillance capabilities. And maybe what these youngsters are up to is going to actually produce capabilities that we will need. So let's protect them. Let's protect them from regulation. And in Canada, we do have a similar exception that allows for law enforcement agencies to obtain personal information from companies without consent, without a judicial warrant, in a very broad range of cases. I mean, a former privacy commissioner here called those powers extraordinary back in 2013. Absolutely. That's what I call docking and harboring. So we want these surveillance capabilities, but we're going to dock them in a place where they don't come under the same rule of law that we are subject to. And in reciprocity, these companies are going to harbor and nurture and grow these capabilities on our behalf to a certain extent. And therefore, when uh, we meet a crisis moment, (laughs) which we're in right now, by the way, when we meet a crisis moment, hey, how convenient, exactly the kind of data that we wish we could have actually does exist. And it exists right there in those companies. And we just take a long straw and we throw it across the, you know, across the continent, right down into the milkshake over in Silicon Valley, and we can slurp up all of this great data. And of course, when Ed Snowden entered history, we learned about the PRISM project. PRISM was the, um, the known intentional collaboration between the intelligence agencies, yours, as well as ours, as well as others around the world, the famous Five Eyes. So we we learned about that intentional collaboration to make these data streams available at the request of government. 
But we also learned about the more secret. Stellar Wind was the secretive project where the intelligence agencies um, were led by the, the NSA were able to tap directly into undersea cables. And so tap directly into the milkshake, even bypassing the knowledge of the tech companies. That was a little detour, but important to know exactly what you were saying, Nate, that these capabilities were allowed to develop in the first place because of their utilities for the state, especially in times of crisis such as 9-11. And that's what I call surveillance exceptionalism, the idea that we're going to give them a free pass from the rule of law. Understanding the imperatives and understanding the historical conditions under which this economic logic was allowed to root and flourish, we can now look back over the last two decades and what do we see? We're living in the digital century. And this was supposed to be the golden age of democracy. We were told right at the beginning, information wants to be free and knowledge would be distributed to everyone and suddenly we could have access to proprietary knowledge from which we were excluded as lone individuals, right? Now the World Wide Web, thanks to Google and these other companies, were going to give us access to knowledge and to people that we would never be able to access in the world before the web and before these companies created their tremendous services. Here we are in this supposed golden age. And something very different has happened. Under the aegis of private capital, these corporations have essentially translated our lives, our private lives, but also the entire world, our cities, our homes, our bodies, the entire world translated into data. It's like you think of the planet, think of a map of the entire world. And then turn that into an avatar. The entire world also exists on the level of information. Because in the year 2000, only 25% of all the information in the world was stored digitally. In the year 2020, 100% of the information in the world is stored digitally. Where is it stored? It's stored primarily on private servers of these companies. Who knows how to analyze it? The only people who have the capabilities to analyze it are these private companies. Who decides who gets to know what's in these data? It's the private companies that decide. It's funny you say that. When Google was before our international committee in Ottawa, they did acknowledge making a change as to how they read or analyze our emails a number of years ago, but they didn't make that change because of any new law. They made that change because of an internal decision. Maybe they decided it wasn't the right thing to do ultimately, or maybe they decided that their customers would have a negative reaction if they discovered that the company was reading their emails. And the lines of what is right and what is wrong are being drawn by private actors rather than by the public. And they made that change because they came to a point of critical mass in their supply chains, that they knew that everything they took out of those emails, they could get from other sources. <laughs> so we don't have to be so creepy about it. We can get the same information in a way that isn't going to offend people quite so on the nose. No, we can do it in a way that they never know about. <laughs> right, right. So it's a tremendous public relations coup to be able to say, we're going to do the right thing. We're going right. to stop scanning your emails because 
Canadians are so sensitive to this. But the fact is, they only make those decisions when they know that it will not cost them anything because they've got enough matching data to understand that they can get exactly the same insights through other data streams that are still engineered to be indecipherable. Is it a latent harm then? I mean, I can point to specific examples of the mass collection of data and the amount to which you and I have been surveilled and profiles created with some picture of who we are, what we like, and then targeting to us, that that information can be used in an improper way then by a third actor or even by the companies themselves? Or is there something more inherent in the harm? Let's take it from the top because it's both. For those of us who aspire to democracy, right? We live in democratic societies. Many democratic societies right now are really under pressure from authoritarian forces that have grown up in these last decades of increasing income inequality and exclusion, economic exclusion, social exclusion. So our democracies in many cases are really under pressure, but we aspire to fortify our democracies to increase their health because we know that democracy is for all of its vulnerabilities still the best idea that humanity has come up with in all these millennia that we should have the right to rule ourselves to govern ourselves the right not to be governed by tyrannies not to be governed by absolutist authority if we look at this simply from a structural point of view, we suddenly realize that without our even knowing it, and certainly without our having agreed to it, we are living in so-called democracies that are characterized by extreme asymmetries of knowledge. Extreme asymmetries of knowledge morph into extreme asymmetries of power. So it's not only the gap between what I know and what can be known about me. But now it's the fact that all that knowledge about me can also be used to intervene in my behavior, to shape my behavior in ways that are engineered to bypass my awareness. So I never even know about it, but can make me do things that I presumably would not have done. You don't have to be some random third party, although you can be. You don't have to be a nefarious troll funded by an oligarch or funded by the Russian government or the Chinese government. You can simply be a private company with the private ownership of the world's information and the ability to turn that into action. This is what we have created in the midst of our so-called democracies. Now, economies of action is an evolving spectrum of capability. We see it beginning with the targeted advertising. And of course, it's easy to say, well, what the heck? Right. I was searching for shoes. I kind of like those shoes. Who cares? I'm getting this free service. They figured out what kind of dresses I like. And I regularly see that shape in the clothing that's advertised to me. So am I willing to live with that? Well, not really personally, but maybe some people are. You know, there's a way in which we write off the harms of, of the ads. Of course, in saying that, what they don't realize is that they're laboring under the illusion that privacy is something private. And my response to this is privacy is not private. You think 
it's a private trade-off. I give up some of my private data and in return, I get some useful ads. And if they're not useful, I ignore them. What's the big deal? The fact is that the data you give up is a tiny fraction of those trillions of data points being ingested every day. The vast majority of what they know about you doesn't come from what you willingly gave. It comes from all the metadata they have sucked out of every aspect of your experience about which you have no awareness, the stoop of your shoulders, the hundreds of little muscles in your face that betray your emotions. When you posted your photos, your family photos on Facebook to share them with your parents who live 200 miles away, you had no idea that those photos would be scraped for Facebooks and other companies' facial recognition systems that those facial recognition systems would be used to train ever more powerful AIs. Facebook today receives about 250 billion photos a year. These are training powerful AIs, but other companies like Microsoft has one of the most powerful training data sets for training facial recognition in the wild. That means just like anywhere you run into a face, that system can grab the face and tell you who it is. And Microsoft fed its training data set with faces out of Facebook, faces out of any website, you know, a lot of times where we work, you know, or have, might have a little bio with a picture of our face. But then Microsoft goes and takes this facial recognition system and it sells it to military divisions. With all of your work and all of your research, has it led you to change your behavior and interaction with these devices and technology? Well, I wrote my, my first paper on these themes in 1980, based on work I began doing in 1978. Wow. I've been studying these themes for a very long time. In the first couple of decades of my work, these themes were largely confined to the workplace. So it was about how managers and executives were using the behavioral data to survey their own workforces and control instead of doing what I had hoped they would do, which was using all these new information streams to actually upgrade the workforce by engaging people and learning how to make sense of information and being able to add value at every level of the organization and so forth. And I spent the first part of my career on that set of problems. But for the last 20 years, the focus has shifted from the workplace alone to the entire society. First hitting consumers with e-commerce, and then with the expansion of services like Google and its various, not only search, but its various other products and services, and then ultimately social media, going beyond the consumption function, right? So we stop talking just about consumers and we start talking about users which is basically everybody who's connected to the web in, in any kind of way. So this has been a long process of understanding for me. And therefore, I started out cautious. I mean, from the start, I had an understanding of what Facebook was up to, you know, and I, I never joined Facebook, for example, as much as I wanted to see what my kids were doing there. <laughs> And that over time, I was able to educate my children so that they, they came to understand what was appropriate and what was inappropriate to, to do on Facebook. 
And of course, in my own utilization, gosh, I, I heard my son commenting about this to somebody the other day. I have VPNs and you know various kinds of services that block trackers. And if I could see that part of my screen right now, you know, sometimes it says 35 trackers blocked. Sometimes it says two trackers blocked. Sometimes it says 56 trackers blocked. The whole thing is crazy. And while individuals like you obviously can take precaution in the absence of rules, we shouldn't be putting the onus on the individual to police the problem. Of course not. We're putting the onus on you. I think that's right. The onus is on us as policymakers. And so having identified the problem is the answer stronger privacy rules and to turn that bed of sand into something more concrete to ensure there's meaningful consent and penalties without it. I mean, that seems to be where the privacy commissioner is headed in its legal action against Facebook here in Canada. Or do we look to competition rules? The challenge there obviously being that one might be able to extract Instagram or WhatsApp from Facebook, but certainly can't turn Facebook into something entirely different. The network effect is the reason for its value. Its pernicious effects are also its positive effects. What levers should we be looking at to police the problem most effectively? Industrial capitalism was already a mighty force at the end of the 19th century. But at the end of the 19th century, in those last couple of decades of the 19th century, where we were had these the huge trusts and the great monopolies, the Standard Oils, the U.S. Steels, and so forth. We had very little law. Workers were not protected. Child labor was not protected. We didn't have laws that defended people's rights to join unions, to bargain collectively, the right to strike. The balance of power was completely unequal, all on the side of the companies and indeed in the courts. Right through into the 1920s, right through the first two decades of the 20th century, the courts largely viewed every decision, labor legislation and other workplace-related legislation through the lens of property rights. The employers owned the workplace, the factory, whatever it was. And on the basis of those property rights, the employers had unilateral authority to say what goes. If we were to stand early in the 20th century or at the end of the 19th century and look ahead to the future, what would we say? If we were to predict what kind of future will we have? We will say, well, it's not going to be a very democratic future because there will be extreme income inequality. And, you know, there will be a small group of oligarchs who control these vast monopolies and hold all the power in society. And then there will be a vast population of largely uneducated serfs who work in these massive gargantuan behemoth enterprises without any rights. And that is a very dim future indeed to look forward to. But there were people who contested that vision of the future. They were actually called progressives and their movement was called the progressive movement. And they said, we have to protect children. We must have child labor legislation and it can't just be state by state. And we have to have laws for fair wages and we have to have laws for worker safety and we have to have laws for worker hours and we have to have laws that allow people to come together and bargain and defend the right to collective action to create a balance of power between ordinary workers and these and these great companies and their owners. And furthermore, we have to have new kinds of institutions, including the laws that authorize those institutions. And these institutions have to provide a social safety net, health insurance, 
They have to provide employment insurance. They have to provide what we call social security. We have to have these new kinds of institutions that nurture and protect the lives of our individual citizens and also help create a balance of power so people aren't entirely dependent on these companies. And this process of tremendous creativity in our public institutions and the laws that define and uphold those institutions, that was, in my country, that was a period of tremendous creative fertility. And funnily enough, it was largely triggered by a crisis, which of course we call the Great Depression. Ultimately, I mean, the 20th century obviously was a, it was a fraught century. We had two great wars and a lot of conflict, a lot of violence, totalitarianism. It's not like we have a guarantee of creating our Garden of Eden, but with these new institutions and their laws, the rule of law that upheld them, we actually created stable democracies in the 20th century. We created the possibility of market democracies. So we tethered capitalism and to the well-being of society and to democracy. And we did that coming out of an era in which such things appear to be impossible. My argument to you and to your colleagues, both in Canada and around the world, is that we now enter the third decade of the digital century, the 21st century. I didn't anticipate that it would also be marked by a global crisis, but of course it is. But this is the decade, I believe, this third decade is the decade where our work is to undertake the creativity of institution building and legislative frameworks and the regulatory paradigms that express those legislative frameworks that will ensure that the digital century can also be a democratic century in just the way that we once ensured that the industrial century could be a democratic century. That is our work now. And that cannot just come from individuals. It comes from individuals banding together in new social movements and new forms of collective action and doing that in tandem with our public officials and our lawmakers, because we need each other. Lawmakers can only move when they know they've got the public at their backs and the public can only be protected if lawmakers are going to do the work of creating the new institutions that represent our interests. Ultimately, we are connected in a very important symbiosis. And that's, I think, got to lead the whole charge of law for this next decade. In Canada here, our committee in the last parliament certainly worked across party lines, and then the government did its own consultation work towards a digital charter. In our 2019 platform, we built on that notion and promised all sorts of additional protections, from giving teeth to the institution of the privacy commissioner to a new data commissioner, less clear how those offices would interact. There's a strengthening of existing privacy rights, but also proposed new rights, including a right to data portability to empower the user with greater control. I still have concern that too much onus is ultimately placed on users and citizens to police the content of every term and condition. If we take a consumer protection point of view, we don't in the offline world expect or demand that of consumers. And I think privacy laws ought to be thought of in a consumer protection framework more than we sometimes do. But there is a 
push for a new and stronger framework uh, for our competition commissioner to consider data issues in the course of making decisions on mergers and acquisitions, stronger privacy rules, as I mentioned. I wonder if there's anything else that needs to be on the table. One area that's been significantly unexplored, for example, in the government's work to date on digital issues has been the notion of algorithmic accountability, ensuring that these institutions and commissioners have the capacity and resources, yes, but also the legal authority to look under the hood and say, what are the inputs? What are the outputs to this algorithm? Is it acceptable? What is happening? And frankly, greater penalties where third parties are involved and it can't be a shrug over the shoulders when Facebook shares information with a third party and that third party goes on to do something nefarious, but also greater accountability for the original collectors of information. In the course of your work, when you look at the GDPR in the EU or the new data rules in California, do you say, yes, of course, but not enough? And here are some additional solutions that need to be put on the table? So far, what you're describing, and this is true pretty much everywhere, whether we're talking about GDPR in Europe or whether we're talking about the kinds of privacy legislation that's making its way to institutionalization in some of our states, led by California, you know, this is definitely a horse that is out of the barn. But So far, most of the work is just as you've indicated, it's taking our 20th century rubrics and applying them to this new world. This is easily illustrated by this reach for consumer harms, because that was the model of the 20th century. I've just written a paper, I call it caveat usor, because When we talk about consumer harms, we talk about caveat emptor, buyer beware. So that's great in the 20th century. In the 21st century, there is a new political category that has been overlooked, and that is the user. And the harms to users are not the same as the harms to consumers. So caveat user, user beware. And if there's anyone who is using the World Wide Web, they are a user. So they are part of this new political franchise. So expect to see social movements coming out of a new self-awareness of users as political actors. So that's one thing. Let's talk about rights. Well, when we talk about privacy rights, our conception of privacy rights very much stems from a kind of early 20th century context, you know, very specifically, even late 19th century, you know, the newspaper writer who brought a photographer and took a picture of someone without their permission. And then that picture lands in the paper. And that that obviously was the uh, motivation for Justice Brandeis in U.S. case law of beginning to write about um, the right to privacy. But let's go back to the very beginning of our conversation and this bed of sand that surveillance capitalism rests on, unilaterally taking private experience without people's knowledge and therefore without their consent. And I've said that this is theft. And so the whole edifice rests on what would, in other contexts, be called criminal behavior. This is not simply the right of privacy, because what is privacy? Privacy means that I have control over a situation such that I can decide what aspects of my experience are shared and what aspects of my experience remain private. So privacy is an effect of a cause. So I ask the question, what is the cause? The cause is what I call my epistemic rights, epistemic referring to 
my right to knowledge. Who gets to know about me? At the very beginning, before you get to data portability, or before you get to data governance, or before you get to data accessibility, all things that are addressed in the GDPR and California, before you get to that, you have a fundamental question of epistemic rights. What about my experience should be turned into data in the first place? And it's here where I think you're exactly right to draw lines between the different conversations we're having, caveat user and caveat emptor, because this is about more than protecting consumers. But it's also where there's a great similarity in some respects, not in the sense that we need to protect individuals as consumers, but in the sense that we can't expect individuals to police this on their own. So we have legislation in Canada that sets implied warranties in consumer contracts. We draw the line. No contract can override these rules because we can't expect individual consumers in a hurry, busy with their own lives, not going to read every consumer contract, but also because of the asymmetry of bargaining power. We can't expect individuals to police their best interest through consumer contracts. So we, as policymakers, we are going to draw lines for society in the best interests of society. So no, it's not like consumer protection law insofar as we shouldn't treat everyone as consumers, but it is like consumer protection law insofar as individual contracts can't be relied upon. We need public rules. Absolutely. And that's why the solutions now are solutions of public institutions and their legal frameworks and their regulatory paradigms and not solutions of individuals. So even though the rights adhere to individuals, those rights can only be instantiated and defended by law. Well, I think that is a very useful place to leave it. And Shoshana, I really want to thank you for being so generous with your time and all of your work on this. You're very welcome. I'm counting on you to fix this <laughs> up in Canada. I'm counting on you all to be a vanguard in new law and new institutionalization. You and your colleagues in Canada, I have a lot of faith in you. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Uncommons with Professor Zuboff. This one is from the vault in a way and that we recorded it in April. And I initially thought to wait until we were dealing with these issues in Parliament again, but then seeing Shoshana in The Social Dilemma on Netflix and reading about yet another story of Facebook's involvement in an election scandal, what better time to highlight the need for global action to address surveillance capitalism and its consequences. Remember to subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca, and please do leave a five-star review if you like what we're doing on your platform of choice. 